You're listening to The Encounter Podcast, featuring the latest messages and teachings by David Diga Hernandez. Don't forget to subscribe. The Encounter Podcast. Encounter the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not some mysterious mist floating in the atmosphere. The Holy Spirit is not a feeling or a force. The Holy Spirit is a friend. He's a person. He is God. And his ministry affects every aspect of your life. As you begin to understand the different roles and functions of the person of the Holy Spirit, your appreciation for his presence will be deepened and you'll become more sensitive to that work that he does in your life. And this produces transformation and spiritual growth. So let's look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are several things that the Holy Spirit does. Number one, He's heaven's greatest evangelist. All of us who've come to the cross, all of us who now serve the Lord, came to Jesus because the Holy Spirit convicted us and drew us to the Son by the power and the will of the Father. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11 says this, But in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. A conviction is a deeply held belief. When the Holy Spirit convicts someone, he is helping them to come to a deep belief. He's persuading us. He's speaking to us strongly in these areas. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its sin. He speaks against the negative power of sin. And it is a very destructive power. It's a very destructive force that he warns us against because it violates God's holiness. It destroys our lives. It keeps us from a connection with God and so forth. So the Holy Spirit speaks powerfully and persuasively against sin. You ever done something wrong and you sense that, that deep anguish in your heart over what you've done? That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, letting you know that that was a violation of God's holy standard. And the Holy Spirit also convicts us of God's righteousness. This means the Holy Spirit doesn't just tell us what is wrong. The Holy Spirit presents to us God's holy standard that we might aspire to that standard. He calls us to higher places and of the coming judgment. He speaks, of course, of the wrath of God. He speaks, of course, of the standards of God. Verse nine, the world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. So if the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and the primary sin of the world is that it refuses to believe in Christ, then that means the Holy Spirit convicts us unto belief in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. So the Holy Spirit is the greatest evangelist who has ever lived. He draws men and women unto salvation. He speaks to even the most stubborn hearted and he begins to soften the hearts of the cynics and the skeptics and those who've been running from God for seasons of life. Now, so much of what we call evangelism today is actually just emotional pleading. You and I have the job of presenting the truths of the gospel but it's the Holy Spirit's job to persuade. You and I must present the truth and then the Holy Spirit is the one 
who draws people to Christ. So when we rely on emotionalism, when we rely on pressure tactics, when we rely on the traditions of man, we risk drawing people into false conversion. We, we, we risk bringing people into an emotional experience that they mistake for a salvation experience. And this is why we have to be very careful with the way we present the truth of the gospel, that we're adhering to what the scripture says it actually is. So when you witness to someone and invite them to receive the Lord as savior, make sure that you're relying primarily upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Sure, you and I have the responsibility of presenting the gospel, but it's the Holy Spirit who convicts the heart. And if we try to be the convictor, then we actually uh, can produce what is called a false conversion. And sure, we should uh, persuasively preach the gospel. Think about how Paul the apostle would reason with the skeptics and reason with those who were stubborn and hard-hearted. But carnal efforts alone cannot produce spiritual results. We have a partnership with God in evangelism. Our job is to faithfully declare the message of the gospel and the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us, leading the way and helping the hearers of the gospel message to ultimately come into a saving grace that God can only bring about. Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12 say this, and when you are brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. So the Holy Spirit is the one who prompts us to speak with persuasion. The Holy Spirit is the one who allows us to speak the gospel in such a way that the heart of the sinner is turned toward Christ. He is heaven's greatest evangelist. Number two, the Holy Spirit is the masterful teacher. John chapter 14, verse 17 says this, he is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. John chapter 14, verse 26. And by the way, I actually throughout this lesson may repeat several verses because several verses have several truths. John 14, 26. But when the father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. Think about the fact that it's the Holy Spirit who takes what Christ has taught us through his word, who reveals truth, and who causes that to become life-transforming revelation. If you try to read the scripture without the help of the Holy Spirit, you'll make a great philosopher, you'll make a great historian, but there'll be no transformation in the core of who you truly are. Only when we receive the word by the Holy Spirit, with his help, with his guidance, can we receive the revelation in such a way that it actually transforms us at the core of who we are. The Bible also says in John chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, and I love the title the scripture gives to him here, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. We'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 15, 
All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. 1 John 2.27 But you have received the Holy Spirit, and he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know, and what he teaches is true. It is not a lie. So just as he has taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. Now, it's important to remember here, and this is a bit of a tangent in 1 John 2, 27, the Bible is not saying that we don't need pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. God would not say, here is a gift for you, but you don't need the gift I gave you. He would not say, here are teachers, but you don't need teachers. Here are pastors, but you don't need pastors. Rather, this is talking about our understanding of the truth of the gospel at its core and Really, we don't need anyone to come and lay a new foundation or teach us a new gospel. We'll know what is true and what is not by the Holy Spirit. But that is more specifically to do with our inner witness, knowing the truth of the gospel, than it has to do with understanding scripture and learning spiritual truths through teachers. So don't misunderstand what the scripture is saying there. Now, for several years, I struggled to understand the word for myself. At 11 years old, that's when I got saved, I began to study the word. And it's funny because I would watch preachers and teachers on television and I would see them expounding upon the scripture and I would hear them sharing truths that really, really I found just powerful. And they were sharing those truths out of the same portions of scripture that I was reading and getting nothing. So I would read a certain chapter of the Bible and I would be scratching my head going, what does this mean? How does this apply to my life? What is the scripture communicating here? What is God communicating to me through this portion of scripture. And then I would flip through the Christian channels and I would find the teacher and every so often I would find someone who was teaching on the very chapter that I was reading. And as they would expound upon the truths of the scripture, I would go, how did they see that? How did I miss that? How did I not receive that? And I honestly, if I'm being just transparent with you, I was very frustrated for a season in my life with my inability to understand the word of God. I would read several verses, realize I didn't know what I was reading and then have to start over again or get halfway through a chapter and then realize that I wasn't paying attention to half the things that I was reading. This is why we need the masterful teacher. He doesn't just help you process the information. He helps you to realize, that means actualize the revelation. Information informs, revelation transforms. And he's right beside you. Think about the wonderful reality that the person of the Holy Spirit, the one who inspired the scripture, the one who caused those words to be written, he sits alongside of you as you study the word. So when you're studying the scripture, yes, apply biblical hermeneutics. Yes, apply practical study methods. Yes, study to show yourself approved unto God. That's necessary. But don't forget that there's a spiritual element to this. And if you rely only upon natural means, you'll get natural results. But when you are a student of the word and you apply practical study, God does want us to do the practical. That's our part in the partnership. When you begin to study to show yourself approved unto God, when you do the proper research and you allow the text to speak for itself, and you look at the context and the history and the author and the intent and the purpose and the tone and the recipients of the epistles and so forth, then you begin to gain 
an understanding from the practical side. And that's good. We need that. But if you forget the spiritual element, it'll all just be knowledge, none of it revelation. It'll all just be information, none of it anything that really transforms you. It's only by the Holy Spirit that those truths that you receive can actually begin to become a part of you and bring forth transformation. So we need the Holy Spirit, who is the masterful teacher. There's no one else like him who can teach like him. He, and that, by the way, is a mark of the Spirit-filled. They can teach the Word. They can explain complex realities in simple ways. That's one of the marks of the Spirit-filled. So, first of all, we see he's heaven's greatest evangelist. Then we see he's the masterful teacher. Number three, he's the ever-present comforter. John chapter 14, verses 15 to 18. If you love me, obey my commandments. An entire sermon there, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. I love that he said that. He will give you another advocate who will never leave you. Well, think about that. The Holy Spirit, please, someone needs to hear this. The Holy Spirit doesn't abandon you just because you make a mistake. What sense would it make for God to remove from you your only power to be holy as a punishment for you not being holy? I mean, imagine that. God looking down from heaven at you. Oh, you made a sinful mistake? Well, let me remove the power of the Holy Spirit from you as punishment. Well, if he did that, you would never have the power to resist anything at all that was of the flesh. So I love that the scripture clarifies here. Verse 16, and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He's that faithful friend. You know, our true friends know the worst about us, but stay anyway. Those who truly love us see the ugly side and everyone has an ugly side. Those who truly love us see the ugly side, yet stay faithful, yet still remain with you, yet stand by your side, but none so faithful as the person of the Holy Spirit. There is no friend like the Holy Spirit. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. The world cannot receive him, because it, it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. This, of course, was before Acts chapter 2, uh, the day of Pentecost. So that's why he's wording it this way. Verse 18, no, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. He abides with you in times of struggle. He abides with you when you make mistakes. He abides with you in seasons of struggle and heartache and tragedy. You may feel in times when you are in pain and your heart is aching and you feel alone and you've been betrayed and everyone's abandoned you and nothing seems to be working and everything seems to be falling apart. It may feel like God is a million miles away in those seasons. But you have to remember that the scripture says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. How is he near? How is he close? It's by the Holy Ghost. How can he get any closer than within you? For you are, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the dwelling place of God. 
Think about that wonderful truth that the Holy Spirit's presence abides literally in you. And that when you face trouble, when your heart aches, when you don't have the answers for what you're going through, when you face one problem after another in a string of seemingly never-ending problems, you have a comforter. You have a presence abiding in you. I know what that's like to where you wake up some days and there's so much going on that you're tired before the day even begins. I've been through those seasons of life where you sense a heaviness, a sadness, maybe even an emptiness, a detachment. Sometimes you may even not, you may, you may even in seasons not feel anything at all. Just like an empty shell, there's no joy in anything. And life is dull and colorless. And you're just working to get through the day. There are seasons like that, especially when you face heartache. And it seems like there's no color, there's no life, there's no vibrancy to anything. That's when the presence of the Holy Spirit can benefit you as a comfort. When your heart aches, he grieves with you. When you feel alone, he reminds you, I've not abandoned you. I will never leave you. And life is dull and colorless. He is the color to, the, to life. He is life-giving. He is an ever-present comforter. That's who the Holy Spirit is. Number four, he's a mighty intercessor. Many Christians actually don't know that the Holy Spirit prays for you. Yes, the Holy Spirit prays for you. Think about what an advantage that is. Many of us know the advantage of having a praying grandparent or a praying parent. Think about how strong the prayers are of a loving praying mother. Think about how effective the prayers are of a loving father. Think about how powerful the prayers are of a grandparent who's praying for a grandchild. Well, more powerful than all those prayers, more effective than all those pleadings, more useful than all that intercession is the intercession of the person of the Holy Spirit, the one who knows you the best, flaws and all, prays for you like no one can pray for you. Watch this, Romans 8, 26 and 27. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. There's a lot here, so let's break it down. When we don't know what to pray, that's when the Holy Spirit's help can be sensed. Think about those times when you go before the Lord and you don't know how to pray, you don't know what to pray, you don't know what posture to pray in. Do I pray in tongues? If so, for how long? Do I start with praying in tongues and then pray in my known language and then end with praying in tongues? When do I worship? What about intercessory prayer? At what point in my prayer time do I pray for others? Where now do I do spiritual warfare? When do I start rebuking the enemy? When do I start making supplication? How exactly does God want me to list my needs to him? Do I sit? Do I stand? Can I pace the room? Does it offend God? If I'm lying down, will I pray? Can I pray in my mind or do I have to speak it out loud? 
all of these questions and many more rush through our minds in moments of prayer and cause us to be distracted by our obsession with whether or not we're praying correctly in the first place. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in. And when we don't know what to pray, when we feel ineffective, the Holy Spirit is never ineffective. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings. That's intensity of prayer. He prays with passion and zeal. More passion than your parents and grandparents pray for you. More passion than your spouse prays for you. Think about how much you love your kids if you have children. Think about how much you love your spouse if you have a spouse. Think about how much you love your friends and family. And then think about how you pray for them when you pray for them. Think about the love pouring out of you, the passion, the zeal, the fire behind those prayers. Now think about the Holy Spirit. You've heard it said, God loves you. You've heard it said, Jesus loves you. How can people rarely tell you the Holy Spirit loves you too? The Holy Spirit loves you. And he prays for you with groanings, with passion, with zeal. And this zeal, this passion, this fervency can't even be expressed in words. Verse 27, and the father who knows all hearts knows what the spirit is saying. For the spirit pleads for us in harmony with God's own will, meaning his prayers incline us to the will of God. His prayers set us on the path that is divine destiny. He pulls us into God's will. Think about those times in your life where you're struggling spiritually and maybe you're hit and miss on your prayer and reading. Maybe you're hit and miss on your worship, on your devotion, on your church attendance or whatever those spiritual disciplines are that are lacking. Maybe you're in that season where things just aren't really moving in the right direction for you. You feel stuck and maybe you've experienced seasons like that in times past. Look back on those moments. Because as you look back, you'll notice these turning points that come from seemingly nowhere. Suddenly there's this unction to pray. Suddenly there's this desire for the word again. Suddenly there's this realization, I need to get back on track here. And maybe you weren't even doing the things you should have been doing. That's the grace of God. But that's the Holy Spirit's prayers taking effect over you. The Holy Spirit's not going to let you go. The Holy Spirit is not going to abandon you. The Holy Spirit loves you too much to abandon you to your disobedience. Just like with Jonah, God destroyed Jonah's means of disobedience. God sent a whirlwind from his presence to stop Jonah in his tracks. God loved Jonah too much to let him disobey. God loved Jonah too much to let him not fulfill that divine calling upon his life. The Holy Spirit loves you too much to leave you in a state of spiritual decay, to leave you in a state of spiritual weakening and decline. He will pray over you. And he prays for you perfect prayers according to God's will. As I said, he knows everything about you. He knows all your flaws. He knows your past. He knows your secrets. He knows your motives. He knows your doubts. He knows your fears. He knows your insecurities. He also knows your hopes and your dreams and your plans. He knows your struggles. He knows your emotions. And he's able to pray for you perfect precision prayers according to what you need. And in all those areas that you're lacking, in all those areas that you're failing, 
in all those areas that you're coming up short, he pulls you by pleading with groanings that cannot be uttered in words. He pulls you into divine purpose and he aligns you with God's authority. He brings you back into order. He will not let you go. He's your mighty intercessor. He's the one who prays over you. He causes you to have desires that are spiritual. How many times have you seen people jumping from event to event, conference to conference, service to service, revival to revival, wanting all these different men and women of God to lay hands on them? Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting a man or a woman of God to pray over you. That's good. That's a healthy desire. So long as you keep it in proper perspective and remember that men and women of God are just men and women. They're not God. And so this is a good thing to desire as long as it's kept in the right perspective. But think about the fact that many times we go seeking out so-and-so to lay hands on us or so-and-so to pray over. So I need this person to pray for my healing. I need that person to pray for my deliverance. I need this individual over here to give me a prophetic word. I need that person to give me wisdom. Well, think about the fact that the Holy Spirit prays for you himself. The Holy Spirit wants to pray for your healing. The Holy Spirit wants to pray for your deliverance. The Holy Spirit wants to give you wisdom. The Holy Spirit prays. In 2016, I wrote a book called, well, actually it was in 2014 I wrote it, but it was published in 2016 through uh, one of the major Christian publishers. Wrote a book called Carriers of the Glory. And in that book, I was given this phrase, the one who makes Jesus real. The Holy Spirit vivifies the Savior. He intensifies that reality. And I can already hear it. People kind of maybe becoming a little defensive saying, well, Jesus is already real. The Holy, he doesn't need the Holy Spirit to be real. Such a response indicates a misunderstanding of what I'm actually saying. I am not saying that Jesus isn't real unless the Holy Spirit makes him real. I'm saying Jesus often, the reality of his presence is lost upon us. And we are not aware of that reality of his presence. And we can't be aware of the reality of his presence without the help of the Holy Spirit. So yes, Jesus is real, whether we're aware of him or not. But when I say the Holy Spirit is the one who makes Jesus real, I'm saying he's the one who causes us to be aware of that reality. Now, John chapter 15, verse 26 says, but I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth, he will come to, to you from the Father and will testify all about me. The Holy Spirit is the one who manifests the presence of Jesus to us in such a way that it becomes a reality. There was a service that we were having in Southern California. This was actually probably one of the first encounter services our ministry ever did. This was, I want to say, well, I don't want to put a year on it because my chronology is all messed up sometimes. Um, we're conducting this service. It was in Paramount, California. Steve, it was at the Madison building. And it was one of the first services we were doing on our own. Usually I would go preach at churches or conferences. This is the first time I borrowed a building, promoted it on YouTube, and just started inviting people to come and experience God's power. So I'm there and my team and I are preparing for the service. We're praying over all the chairs in that meeting. There's a line of people outside waiting for us to open the doors. And as we're praying... We gather the staff together. It was me, some of the ushers, some of the worship team, some of the camera guys, and we all join hands. 
And we begin to pray and ask the Lord to move in the service, to heal, to deliver, and so forth. And as we're praying, suddenly I just sense the presence of Jesus fill the room. Now we know God is omnipresent. God is everywhere at all times. We understand this, but I'm not talking about the omnipresence of God. I'm talking about the manifested presence of God. The omnipresence of God is God everywhere. The manifested presence of God is when you become aware of his presence. That awareness of his presence is what creates those encounters that we call encounters with God, experiences with God, spiritual visitations, if you will. And so I became aware in that moment. I'll never forget this. I became so aware of his presence in that moment. I began to tell the team, I said, guys, Jesus is here. And I remember my phrasing was just kind of met with, oh yeah, amen, amen, hallelujah. They kind of just acknowledged what I said, but I didn't really do a good job of communicating what I was trying to say. And I said, no, 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 listen, listen. Jesus is here. They said, amen, yes, yes, we agree, we believe that. I said, no, you don't understand. I said, Jesus is here. And when I said it that time, I'm certain that what I was sensing began to be sensed by them. That time that I said it, suddenly they all became aware of that same presence. It was like a cloud of glory in the midst of us. It wasn't visible, but that it was like a weightiness to the air. It's the best way I can word it. And, and we became aware of the presence of Jesus who was near us and in the room with us and ready to heal the sick and deliver and so forth. And, and the team began to tremble under the power of God. One of my team members fell to his knees, just began weeping. Another one just started running around the building. I kid you not, he started running around the building, just praying in tongues. He was so excited over what he was feeling. And that is a testament to what I'm describing here. The Holy Spirit brings us into those encounters. Now, we don't desire encounters with God so that we can feel something. If you're after a feeling, you're not living by faith. But when you seek his presence, don't seek feelings, but when you seek his presence, in many instances, you will sense the nearness of God. You will sense him. Look, every part of you, your mind, will, emotions, your physical being, your spirit, every part of you was created to be able to respond to God. There is no part of us that's useless. There is no part of us that wasn't created to respond to God and your emotions are included in that. The physical sensations that you feel when experiencing an encounter with God. People in our meetings all the time, even while they're waiting in line in our, for our services, there are people who testify to lining up hours before our meetings even begin. And they start to sense like electricity on their body and heat on their body. Some feel like a weight on them while waiting just in line. Why? Because they're becoming aware of the presence that's there. That's the manifestation of his power and his presence. So to recap where we are so far, then I'll give you a few more points. He's heaven's greatest evangelist. He's the one who convicts the heart of the sinner and convicts us of righteousness. Number two, he's the masterful teacher. Number three, he's the ever-present comforter. Number four, he's the mighty intercessor. Number five, he's the one who makes Jesus real. Now, let me give you a few more here. Zechariah 12.10 makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to pray. You can't pray without the Holy Spirit. Well, you can pray, but it's not really true prayer. It's not true depth. You're praying with, with powerlessness. Think about the fact that Muslims pray. If they get in a bad enough situation, atheists pray. People of religions pray. 
people of the new age pray and, and their prayers don't have any true power because they're not praying in the spirit. They're not praying by the power of, according to the will of, and with the guidance of the person of the Holy Spirit. So he's the one who gives us that praying spirit, the spirit of prayer and supplication. Not only does he guide you when you pray, but he gives you the desire to pray to begin with. Look, the Holy Spirit, when it comes to prayer, will give you the desire, but you have to enact the discipline by making the decision. So the Holy Spirit gives us that passion for prayer. He draws us into the prayer room. Sometimes you'll sense this. You're going about your day and suddenly you sense like, like a pull on your heart, like a tug on your heart, pulling you into prayer. There's something in you that says, I need to go seek the Lord right now. I need to go be alone with him. I need to go pray. That's, that's the pool. That's the sense of the spirit. He's drawing you into the places of prayer. Now, please note this. Anytime you have a desire to pray, the Holy Spirit was the one who gave you that desire. Psalm 80:18 says, quicken us and we will call unto you. Before you can call unto him, you have to be quickened. You might say, well, does that mean that I can't just approach God when I want to? No, what I'm saying is that when you want to, that want to was given to you by the Holy Spirit. So Christians wonder all the time. I want to pray, but I'm wondering if God is angry with me. I want to pray, but I wonder if God will accept me. I want to pray, but I wonder if God will hear me. Well, think about the fact that the desire to pray came from the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the desire to pray is itself an invitation to prayer. So if you have a desire to pray, you're, you're drawn to the place of prayer, then that is proof that God is beckoning you. It's a royal invitation. He's our power unto holiness. Let me read you this verse. Go to Galatians chapter five. I'm gonna read verse number 16. The Bible says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. That's surrender to the Holy Spirit. Some say, for some reason, that surrender to the Holy Spirit isn't a biblical concept. You do have to allow the Holy Spirit to do some things. Yes, he could overpower us. Yes, God can make us do anything but he honors free will because that's the way he designed the order of this world. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. In other words, surrender, allow him to, allow him to move in you, welcome him. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Now there the scripture's telling us that if we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us, we surrender to the Holy Spirit, then we won't do what the sinful nature craves. We won't fulfill those cravings. So the Holy Spirit is our power unto holiness. I like to call him the holiness spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. He draws us to holiness. He convicts us when we sin. He reminds us of God's holy standard. The Holy Spirit gives you the power. He quickens the mortal body. He gives it power to resist the pull, the allure of the sin nature. He helps us to worship. Go to John chapter four, verse 24. Not only is the Holy Spirit the greatest teacher, not only is the Holy Spirit the greatest evangelist, the Holy Spirit is also the greatest worship leader. John chapter four, verse 24. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in, watch this now, spirit and truth. Well, what is the truth? The truth is given to us through the word. What is of the Spirit? Whatever the Holy Spirit reveals. So the Holy Spirit takes the truth of the word, causes it to become revelation, and then worship is our response. I want you to hear this. Worship 
is always a response to revelation. True worship is a response to revelation. True worship is your being responding to God's being. True worship is giving God glory as you see his glory. What do I mean when I say that all true worship begins as revelation? I mean that in order for it to truly come from the spirit, in order for it to be true worship of God, there has to be some level of revelation. You can't worship God unless he's revealed himself. Now, all of us, whether we're saved or not, have received at least a minimal amount of revelation. Think about Romans chapter one that talks about how the invisible God was plainly seen through creation. And so you and I, all of us, have some form of revelation that we have the responsibility of responding to. And so when the Holy Spirit reveals something of God, the Spirit responds to that, and that spiritual response ignites emotion, ignites the physical response, ignites the singing and the praising and the dancing. So you can sing without a revelation. You can dance without a revelation. You can jump up and down and shout and blow a shofar, all without a revelation. And it's exterior performance unless there's been an inner revealing to you about something concerning the nature of God. So then, when the Holy Spirit reveals something of God, my spirit responds, and out of that spiritual response flows this heavenly ecstasy, this heavenly euphoria, this, this, this praise, this worship, this, 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 this honoring of who God is, this response from my being that flows from deep within my spirit, affects emotions, affects the mind, affects my thoughts, affects my actions, and it overflows to become praise. It overflows to become a song. It overflows to become what we call worship. Whether that worship is a song, whether that worship is a sacrifice, whether that worship is simply obeying God, which is the greatest form of worship, it's a response to the revelation of God, giving him glory with your response, glorifying him through some response as you see his glory, your being responding to his being. That's why it's worship in spirit and in truth. You can't just worship with just truth alone because if it's just truth alone, there's been no revelation. There's no spirit to ignite that information. And if it's just the spirit, it's, it's, it's just your emotion. It's just what we would call of the spirit. Though sometimes I think we get that term confused. Then, then there's really no substance to it. This is why you look to the word and the word brings forth revelation by the help of the Holy Spirit. And that ignites worship in your heart. So the Holy Spirit is heaven's greatest worship leader. He convinces us of our sonship. I love this one right here. I love all of these, but look at this one right here. Romans chapter eight, verse 15. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. We'll read verse 16 too. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. So, if ever you feel like you don't belong to God, if ever you feel rejected, if ever you feel like you don't belong, the Holy Spirit affirms our identity. This work right here of the Holy Spirit's ministry is perhaps one of 
if not the most important work that he does in the life of the believer. This is after salvation now I'm talking. That affirmation of identity, that grounding in the truth of who you are in Christ. So many believers, because they're bound to legalism, confuse self-hatred with humility, and that's not what humility is. Rather, we must come to the place where we recognize who we are in him. Stop referring to yourself as a sinner. If you've been redeemed, you're not a sinner anymore, though that part of who you used to be may still fight against you and still crave to do wrong things. That's not who you are anymore. You can respond to that old identity. You can respond to that old pattern of thinking. You are held accountable for your mistakes, but that's not who you are. You mustn't identify with that part of you anymore. Some people think that the more spiritual you are, that the more you act like a worm, oh, I'm just a worm before you, God, I'm nothing. And that's this self-hatred, this this, this, um, this destructive way of talking about who you are in Christ. That's not what God's called us to. Yes, when we were not saved before Christ, of course, we must admit that. I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. But then after he transforms you, you become the righteousness of God in Christ. You stand in Christ's accomplishments. You stand in that identity. And you're no longer a sinner. You've become a saint by the resurrection power of the blood of Jesus. That's what the work of the Holy Spirit does in you. It transforms your identity. Behold, all things become new. You're a new creation. That's not who you are anymore. You may sometimes operate under that old mindset. You may sometimes allow that old identity, who you aren't anymore, to have some influence, but that's not you. You're fighting against who you used to be, not who you are now. And so while I understand humility, while I understand the fear of the Lord, while I understand recognizing our brokenness without God, recognizing our helplessness without God, recognizing that we need him just to breathe our air. Yes, we're helpless without him. Yes, we need him. Yes, we're nothing without him. But because we are now in Christ, you are no longer a sinner, you're a saint. And the Holy Spirit confirms this. He pleads with you. You are, you are a child of God. He joins with your spirit to affirm that sonship, to affirm who you are in Christ to remind you that you are a child of God. So when the world and when your emotions and when your circumstances demand that you think like an orphan, the Holy Spirit speaks a greater truth and says, think like a son, a child of God. Do you know who you belong to? Do you know who your father is? Do you know what your new identity is? Do you know how you've been transformed, rescued and delivered from the kingdom of darkness, a new creation? There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He affirms this. And so many are stuck under the power of legalism that they miss this. They confuse self-hatred for spirituality. Now, I'm not saying that you can just go on doing what you want to do and living how you want to live. No, what I'm saying is that there's hope for you in recognizing who you are now and you must aspire to begin to act out of that identity. Now that I know that I belong to him, now that I know that I'm a child of God, now that I know who I am in Christ, I must align my life with my new identity. So no one is saying to be dismissive about wrongdoing. No one is saying you can do and live as you please without consequence. I'm not saying that at all. That's far from the truth. What I am saying is that you are a child of God even when you don't feel like it. 
You are accepted even when you feel rejected. You are wanted even when you feel unwanted. You are a son even when you feel like a servant. You are a saint even when you feel like a sinner. God has not abandoned you and the Holy Spirit joins with your spirit to affirm this truth. He performs the miraculous through us, Galatians 3, 5. 2 Corinthians 4, 13 talks about a spirit of faith. Now that exact terminology, spirit of faith, that phrase is not a direct reference to the Holy Spirit himself, but anything that takes place in your spirit must take place with the help of the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit is the one who joins with our spirit to produce all of the divine attributes, to produce the fruit of the Spirit, and to produce all of the work of God in our lives. So anything that happens in your spirit as a born-again believer is a work of the Holy Spirit. So that spirit of faith is the result of having been joined with the Holy Spirit. He produces faith in your life. He gives you boldness. Think about Acts chapter 2. Peter denied the Lord three times, and now he's up preaching in front of a whole bunch of people. Think about the fact that 3,000 people were added to the church that day. For every time Peter denied Jesus, he was redeemed and won 1,000 to the Lord. That was 1,000 for every denial. That's transformation. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is heaven's greatest evangelist. The Holy Spirit is God's presence within you. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes Jesus real. The Holy Spirit is your comforter. The Holy Spirit is your friend. The Holy Spirit is your intercessor. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that your people would surrender to this work. Give them the grace and the spiritual awareness, the keen spiritual awareness to recognize what you're doing in their lives. Help us, Lord, to daily surrender to the work of the precious Holy Spirit. Let us be reflections of Christ here in the earth. We honor you, we bless you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you for listening to The Encounter Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Support the podcast by becoming a monthly supporter or making a one-time donation now. To give, just go to davidhernandezministries.com slash donate. Until next time, remember, nothing is impossible with God.